dear congregation, Genesis 3 is probably the most pivotal chapter of the entire Bible. It might rightly be called the black chapter of Scripture because of the entrance of sin into the bountiful, perfect world God has provided the crown of his creation, man. As well as the red chapter of Scripture because of the promise of the coming Messiah and the shedding of blood to illustrate and typify that coming in God's clothing, Adam and Eve, with the skins of animals. And also the white chapter of hope. Because as we shall see in a few weeks, God willing, it contains the very first confession of faith. When Adam turned to his wife and called her name Eve, which means Living. So our understanding of Genesis 3 affects all kinds of things. It affects our anthropology. That is, the study of man. What we think of ourselves and our fellow man. It affects our radical sense of depravity. Our radical need for the Savior. Our Christology. It affects our soteriology. The doctrine of salvation. How we are saved is depraved sinners, it really affects all our theology. There's no chapter like it in all the Bible. The whole Bible could not be understood rightly without Genesis 3. And so often, even as true believers... We fail to understand the tremendous implications of the reality of the fall. And when we fail to do that, we try in vain to live our lives not in a fallen world, but we try to live them in the world that God made. And we don't grasp the difference. And when we don't grasp the difference, we we fall on our faces again and again. When we try to live as if this is not a fallen world, as if we're not dying people, as if we don't have to be born again. Few today grasp the tragic depths of our fall. Few today understand that man is not merely sick or seriously diseased, but is dead in trespasses and sins by nature. Few understand today the radical contrast between the first Adam and the last. And that's why the preaching of Genesis 3, the preaching of the entering in of sin into our unfallen world is so critical. This morning, we hope to begin a look at this important chapter with God's help, praying that we may all benefit from it, saved and unsaved alike. Our text you can find in Genesis 2, verse 25, and the first three verses of Genesis 3. You remember last time we said really the last verse of Genesis 2 begins the introduction of chapter 3. 
I will read only at this time verse 6 again of Genesis 3. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. Our theme this morning, sin entering the world. We want to look at three things with God's help. First, the origin of sin. Where did it come from? Second, the nature of sin. What does it consist of? And third, the consequences of sin. What does it lead to? And that third point, uh, at best, we'll just begin this morning by looking at verse 7. The first consequence, and then... Next week, God willing, we'll look at many more consequences in verses 8 through 19. So, our theme, sin entering the world. First, the origin of sin. Where did it come from? Second, the nature of sin. What does it consist of? And third, the consequences of sin. What does it lead to? Now, in recent weeks, you recall, we have been considering... Sermon by sermon, the unfolding of our glorious creation. Our creation in God's world. And we have tried to set before you a variety of principles under which God was operating in that creation. And as we approach Genesis 3, I believe there are three important principles we need to underscore first. As an important backdrop and foundation to understand this critical chapter in Scripture. The first principle I call dependency on God. We have seen in weeks past that that man is the crown of God's creation, that we've been blessed by God in all kinds of ways. We saw, you remember, God's provision for our world and for us. In a, in a physical, a spiritual, a moral, an aesthetic, and a social dimension. In all these ways, God had our well-being in view. He supplied us with every kind of material and spiritual sufficiency we could possibly hope for. But we also saw that at the end of chapter 2, God leaves man as a dependent creature. Dependent upon God for daily sustenance and daily wisdom. And what we see now as we transition into chapter 3 is that chapter 3 tells us how this dependent creature, gloriously made, becomes a defiant creature, grievously sinning against a perfect and a glorious creator. And here lies the tragedy of our deep fall in Adam. We, the dependent ones, have become the defiant, rebellious ones. The second principle we need to remember as we approach chapter 3 is the principle of headship and submission. You recall we saw that too in, in recent sermons. Especially when we focused on the creation of the woman. We saw the man's role as husband to love his wife as head, as Christ loved the church. And we saw the woman's role 
to show reverence and submission to her husband the way the church responds to the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw how that headship submission principle applies also in the church in the lack of female office bearers and yet women doing a great deal of work in the church. And this is evident even this morning as we look around, as we see our females, our women and our teenage girls and our young girls with a hat upon their heads. A head covering, Paul says. 1 Corinthians 11 is to be worn by a woman as a sign of that principle of submission established before the fall. Even as the man is not to wear a head covering in public worship as a sign of his submission to the Lord. And so this headship submission principle is not something we obey just when we feel like it. You don't wear a hat because you feel like it, or you don't not wear a hat because you don't feel like it. You see, some men don't enjoy loving their wives and sacrificing themselves for their sake. Some women don't enjoy showing biblical submission to their husbands or don't enjoy wearing a head covering in public worship. But that's beside the point. The principle of Genesis 2 is obedience. Disobey and you shall break covenant with God and you shall die. We need to remember that as we approach Genesis 3. These things are inseparable. Man must obey God. But what happens, you see, in Genesis 3 is that we fall. We fall terribly, don't we? And fallen men and women are prone to rebel against these principles. That's why God has to say so often, husbands, love your wives, because many men are prone not to love their wives. And he has to say so often, women, show submission to your husband, because many women are not prone to show submission. And yet we ought to be rejoicing in this principle. Every woman sitting here this morning ought to feel a joy in her heart that she may wear a head covering as a symbol of her dignified place in God's creation. Rather than rebelling and conjuring up a number of arguments for not obeying Paul's command in 1 Corinthians 11. You see, we need to obey the biblical mandates that God sets forth. Especially those that relate to his created order. Those are abiding principles. Some people say, well, 1 Corinthians 11. It only applies to the Corinthian church. No, no. It's a principle of creation. Pre-fall. That's an abiding principle. The principle of headship and submission. Now we're grateful, of course, that in our church we, we have few problems implementing that principle. But we need to be reminded of it. And we seldom remind each other of why we wear a head covering. But we need to be reminded of it from time to time, you see. Because otherwise it becomes a principle of mere form or custom. And once it becomes that... The next generation will misunderstand why it is done, and the following generation will abandon it altogether. But then there's a third principle in Genesis 2 that is critical to grasp if we are to properly understand Genesis 3. And that is the principle of what I would call unashamed openness. 
Genesis 2.25 says, And they, Adam and Eve, were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now this verse I say to you this morning is often profoundly misunderstood. It does involve nakedness. You can be assured of that, of course, from chapter 3, verse 7. And the eyes of them both were open. They knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together. So obviously, it is to be taken up in a literal sense. They were naked. They had no clothing on. They were vulnerable, open to one another. But this text means much more than that. And let me explain why. God is making use here of a literary device which is called in Greek a litotes. And a litotes is to use a negative to express a positive. Jesus uses an uses the Ten Commandments that way as litotes, doesn't he? Thou shalt not commit adultery, to Jesus doesn't mean thou just shalt not commit adultery, but it also means thou shalt love thy wife. Thou shalt not kill also means thou shalt regard the well-being of thy brother and thy sister. The Psalms also often use this literary device as well. David says, for example, in Psalm 32, Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. That means, also, blessed is the man to whom the Lord imputeth righteousness, and whose transgression is forgiven. So here, too, the nakedness of Adam and Eve is not just focusing on their lack of clothing, but it is implying their blessedness, because they are clothed with original righteousness. They were naked, yet clothed. Naked physically, but clothed spiritually. And the lack of shame in not using physical clothing implies the freedom from bondage they felt in their daily walk with God. They were open and vulnerable to God. Open and vulnerable to themselves open and vulnerable to each other, open and vulnerable to all creation. Now, the same expression, not ashamed, is used by Paul, isn't it, in Romans 1, when he speaks of being not ashamed of the gospel. What is he saying? Well, he's using a litotes there too. He's saying, I am bold for the gospel. I am free in the gospel. I am open to the gospel. You find the same thing in Hebrews 11 of God himself. When he looks at his people, he says, I am not ashamed that they are my people. God is open with his people. God loves his people with a loving, bold declaration. So as Paul speaks freely about the gospel and is bold for it, and as God shows free love to his people and boldly declares them free in Christ, so Adam and Eve, and their naked condition are declaring freely their open and bold and vulnerable relationship with the living God, and with each other, and with themselves, and with all creation. Really what we're saying here in Genesis 2.25 is that Adam and Eve lived in total integrity. In every sphere of their lives. With no shame. With nothing to hide. 
Now that is critical to understand if we're going to understand the shame and the fig leaves and the hiding of Genesis 3. Well then, let's approach this first question. The origin of sin, where did it come from? You can't read Genesis 3 thoughtfully without asking yourself this question, can you? Because into this beautiful and perfect world, with a perfect husband and a perfect wife and the only perfect marriage that ever existed, suddenly comes this tragedy. Sin enters the door. Sin enters the hearts. And it does so through Satan in the guise of a serpent. Now, nowhere in Genesis 3 does, is a serpent called Satan directly. But we know that Satan was using a serpent here. There was nothing wrong with the serpent in itself. All creation was good. But Satan was using a serpent here. We know that, especially from Revelation 12, verse 9. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. But the real question here is, where did Satan appear from? Is he part of God's creation? Or is he perhaps, as many have said in the past, especially philosophers, there's two principles in the world, the principle of good, which is God, and the principle of evil, which is Satan. Is Satan somehow existed as long as God has existed? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us a lot about Satan. But it does tell us enough that we know that this kind of dualism between good and evil is not a biblical principle. Satan was apparently a created angel. One of the highest and brightest of angels before his fall. And he fell away... Ezekiel 28 tells us that, and Isaiah 14, on account of his preoccupation with his own glory and his foolish ambition to unseat the God of glory and to take God's own place upon his throne. And so when Satan was cast out, Satan in enmity against God decides to tempt man, the crown of God's creation, with the very same sins that caused Satan himself to fall. Now let's look at Satan's fall for a moment. If you turn with me to Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14. Notice there in verses 12 through 14. Would you like to deepen your understanding of Reformed theology? Check out Reformed Systematic Theology, Volume 4, Church and Last Things, by Dr. Joel Beakey and Paul Smalley, to explore key scripture topics from biblical, doctrinal, experiential, and practical perspectives. Pre-order the culmination of Dr. Beakey's life's work at heritagebooks.org forward slash R-S-T-4. Well, 
Most scholars believe that this is Lucifer here is a direct reference to Satan. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, so this is Satan talking now, I will, notice all the I wills here, there's going to be five I wills. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Wow, that's a picture of rebellion, isn't it? An angelic being created by God, created like ourselves, with a capacity for obedience or disobedience, absolutely rebelling against God. Five times, I will. He says, says, I will, over against God's will, just like we do ever since we fell in Adam. And there's two other places the Bible speaks about Satan's rebellion. I'll just mention them to you briefly. 2 Peter 2 verse 4. If God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell. Peter's referring to the revolt of the angelic beings who went down to hell together. And then in Jude verse 6 we read, And the angels which kept not their first estate, which we now call devils, but left their own habitation, God hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. So Satan rebelled against the creatureliness and the dependence which angels and animals share with human beings. In this way, you see, all of God's created order has something in common. We are all dependent upon God. Satan rebels against that. Now, that doesn't help us with the question, when's evil? Ultimately, does it? The great philosopher's question of all ages. And friends, quite frankly, only the sovereign God knows how sin could permeate the very heavens in the form of Satan's rebellion. But obviously, God hasn't seen fit to reveal it to us. We don't need to know it. It doesn't profit us here on earth. What is more important is how did Satan come and tempt Eve and Adam to sin? And how does he come still today and tempt us to sin? And that critical question leads us to our second thought, the nature of sin. What does it consist of? Well, sin, Genesis 3 would tell us, first of all, is a proud defiance of and rebellion, unbelieving rebellion against the word that God has spoken. Let me say that again. Sin is a proud defiance of and an unbelieving rebellion against the word that God has spoken. That's the emphasis of our text this morning. Adam and Eve rebel against the very word that God had made known to them by his own mouth. And the serpent is intent on fomenting and aiming to produce that very rebellion in the heart of Eve. And so one of the very most important reasons of this chapter 
is that you and I not only may see our fallen Adam, but that you and I may receive insights into the cunning and wicked devices of Satan, which he is still using today, whether you're five years old or 90 years old, in our daily lives. And I want to take you with me this morning to trace how Satan exercises his diabolic ministry so that we begin to grasp something of the nature and the heinousness of sin and how easily we fall into it. I want to present it to you, our text this morning, in four stages. Boys and girls, I'm going to give you four words that all begin with D. So you can remember it very easily. You can go home and tell your mom. These are the four ways, and your dad, that Satan works. All beginning with D. The first word is doubting. Doubting. Notice in verse 1, he casts doubt upon God's word. The Bible says the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. The word subtle here means crafty. It doesn't necessarily mean a sinful craftiness, because then we would be saying the serpent itself was sinful. There was nothing sinful in the serpent. But he was subtle. He was crafty. In the original Hebrew, the word subtle is aram. And it's a play on words with the verse before, Genesis 2.25. Aramam is the word used for naked. And so the word play shows us that already the integrity of Adam and Eve is the goal of Satan. Adam and Eve were... Aramam, naked, and now comes the serpent who is Aram, trying to challenge that open integrity, that open vulnerability, and to get them to fall. When Satan opens his mouth through the serpent, he says, Has God said? What a beginning. Has God said? You see, he's calling into question the validity of God's word. There's a touch of cynicism here. It's as if he says, Eve, is this really something you think you can believe that God said? So at the very beginning, you see, of his attack upon Eve's mind and heart and emotions, he smuggles in the idea that God's word is to be subject to man's judgment. Now, that's a very vital thing, friends. Today, there are so many people that Ask each other questions just like that. Say, do you, do you believe it? Do you believe what the Bible says? What, what do you think of this story in the Bible? What do you think of that in the Bible? You see, a man brings God's word into subject to his judgment. Instead of bringing himself into subject judgment to God's word. That's the beginning of Satan's operations. And that's why the intellectual and spiritual battles that we fight in our daily lives in the church, as well as in the broader evangelical church and even in the world as a whole, so often surround this whole question of the authority and the supremacy and the sufficiency and the infallibility and the inerrancy of Holy Scripture. Satan knows that, even when we are inclined to forget it. If he can challenge the Word of God, He knows his foot is already in the door, and the battle is half won. So that's why he begins this way. Did God really say? 
Satan loves to cast doubt on God's word. Doubting God's word lies at the very center of the nature of sin. It's the very heart of the mother's sin of unbelief. Not just doubting the inerrancy of Scripture. You could sit here this morning, perhaps, and say, I believe the inerrancy of Scripture. I believe everything in, in the Bible is the Bible. But you could doubt other things that the Bible says. You could come to me this morning and say, well, I'm not sure God is willing to save me. And you're doubting First Timothy 1.15, aren't you? This is a faithful saying. An undoubtable saying. Worthy to be accepted of all. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And you say, yes, but. And whatever but you put behind it, you see, is a doubting of the word and the authority and the willingness and the power and the might of our Savior God. So what I'm saying to you this morning is be very careful to ever doubt what the word of God says. And when you find yourself doing it, remember it is Satan coming. And he's bringing you onto the battlefield. He's he's your protagonist who is seeking to destroy you through doubting the very word of God. What a tragedy when young people go off to college and their professors encourage them to doubt the word of God. They're doing the devil's work, young people. But also... What a lesson we have to learn here. Because the only way to defeat this is to use the very Word of God to defeat the doubting of the Word of God. When the New Testament says, resist the devil and he will flee from you, it means you should resist him with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. When Satan came to tempt Jesus to doubt the Word of God, what did Jesus say? He said, it is written, it is written, it is written. He used the Word to push away. The doubts about the Word. That's how we should resist Satan as well. Thank you for listening to Doctrine for Life with Dr. Joel Beakey. If you were encouraged by this episode and would like to hear more, please consider subscribing and sharing with a friend. To enjoy more resources from the pen and pulpit of Dr. Beakey, please visit joelbeakey.org.